Well, I know several of you are uh, first-time guests or maybe have come back for the second week in a row. Um, as we read through chapter 2, and, and, and maybe as you got a sense of, of this chapter, you're, you're wondering one of two things. What in the world have I just gotten myself into? <laughs> like, who, who preaches on a passage like this? I mean... What, what, are, what, are, what are we in for? And so I guess in some respects, I just want to encourage you to, to buckle in um, because we are, we are eager to look into the word of God to see what God's word says for us. Uh, the second thought that you might have, have crossed your mind is that's a lot to try to cover in one message. And I, I want to just uh, assure your hearts, we're going we're gonna to focus our attention on verses 20 and 21 but use the, the rest of the chapter to kind of fill in the context for uh, the sermon for this morning. The reason why we are in hard passages is because we're committed to what Peter talks about at the very beginning of his letter. 2 Peter chapter 1, um, verse 3 says, His divine power has given to us everything that pertains to life in godliness through what church? through knowledge, through the knowledge of him who called us. If we want to enjoy the benefits of the divine nature, if we want to live the life that God has called us to live to the full, to the max, to enjoy life in godliness, it happens one way. It happens through the knowledge of God, through the word of God, his revelation, the revelation of God. So that's why we're here this morning, even though it's a tough passage. There's a man by the name of Robert Robertson. He, uh, he lived in the 18th century, was born in the 1700s. Uh, he wrote a familiar hymn that you have all sung, you know, maybe even by heart, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It goes like this. Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. And the final stanza, Robert gives us kind of a window to his heart where he says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Any of you who've been a Christian for any length of time will know the fickleness of the heart. You'll know how, how greatly we are given to wandering. You ever feel that? Well, Robert felt that, and he certainly described it in his hymn, which was written just a couple years after his conversion. He had a troubled childhood, and his home life was anything but picture, picturesque. Grew up in a small town on the southeastern part of England in 1735. He was born the same year that George Whitfield, the great evangelist, was converted to Christ. His parents, in his own words, were devoid of piety, means that they had little, if any, spiritual inclination. Their marriage was a mess, and by the time Robert was in his teens, his father left the family. Robert moved away from his home uh, later in his life or later in his teens and moved to the city of London. 
And one day, he and his friends thought they would go and, and heckle George Whitfield at one of his sermons. They thought they'd give him a hard time. So, so they went to try to mess things up for him, but as a result, God used the message of the word in Robert's own words to torment his soul, to help give him an urgent sense of his own mortality and his own impending damnation, condemnation by God, but that the forgiveness of God was just as real and just as present. And in that moment, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. He served in a church, and the church seemed to grow in a significant way, but eventually he got mixed up with politics, got mixed up with, with theological liberalism, and then even towards the end of his life, he associated with men who openly denied the deity of Christ. There was an unconfirmed story that Robert was traveling towards the end of his life, and he was sharing a stagecoach with a young woman who, in order to pass the time, was singing a song. What song do you suppose she was singing? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And, and not knowing that she was sitting across the one who penned those words, asked him, what do you think of this song? His words were, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. Only God knows the true state of Robert's heart. But it serves as a great example and perhaps a warning from our text this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to focus our attention on verses 20 and 21. Verses 20 says, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. And the next phrase is haunting. For it would have been better for them. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What in the world is going on in this passage? What I usually try to do in approaching any passage, but especially difficult passages, I, I go about it by asking myself questions. And so we did that last week, and I just want to review for us because several of you are, 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 have come for the first time. I, I want to catch you up to, to where we are, and we'll carry it through to the rest of the service and, and hopefully be able to be on the same page together. But the, the first question I ask myself, who in the world are these people? And there are some things we need to acknowledge about them right out of the gate, beginning in, in verse 20, the first uh, phrase here. It says they've escaped the defilements of the world. So they seem to have the right nature. They seem to have the right nature. We notice that Peter is using language that points to conversion. This word escaped is only used uh, three times in all the New Testament, and it's only used here in 2 Peter. He uses it first in chapter 1, verse 4, and it's unmistakably talking about those who have true faith. Notice, so that 
Through them, that's through the very great and precious promises in verse 4, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Almost the exact same phrase, speaking to those who are true believers. This is language for conversion. We need to acknowledge that as we enter into this text. Not only do they seem to have the right nature, but they also seem to have the right knowledge. Notice, this escaping of the defilements happens through knowledge. Through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Knowledge has been a, a, a gigantic theme for Peter throughout this letter. And, and, and what he wants you to understand is that knowledge opens the door for everything good in the Christian life. I mean, absolutely everything happens because of the knowledge of truth, the knowledge of God. In chapter 1, verse 2, we enjoy grace and peace because of the knowledge of God. In chapter 1, verse 3, we enjoy divine power. The indwelling power of the Holy Spirit comes through knowledge, the knowledge of God. In verse 8, we, we understand that a fruitful and effective uh, Christian life happens through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You won't be ineffective. You won't be unfruitful in your knowledge of him. And Peter not only calls attention to the significance of knowledge and, and all that it does, but, but this is special, specific knowledge. It's the knowledge of our Lord and the Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the kind of knowledge he's putting all of these titles for Jesus together. He's, he's grouping them all together to help them know this is the full-bodied understanding of the gospel. The, the bare essentials of the gospel are, are clear. They've been personalized. They have, they have been accepted and received and built on in some way by these people. This understanding of Jesus as Christ, the, the promised one. The understanding that he is savior, deliverer, the one who forgives sin. That, that he alone is the one who can save from sin. And the one who's Lord. He's master. He's authority. He's sovereign. The very truth, by the way, the, the, the masterly uh, sovereign title of Christ is the one who was rejected by these false prophets in chapter 2, verse 1. They deny the master, but not this group of individuals. Throughout their existence in the church, they've, they've received and known and internalized and personalized the knowledge of Jesus Christ and Savior. But something happens to them. That's what we find next. In the second half of verse 20, we find two things. First, we find that they're captured. It says they are again entangled in them and overcome. This word for entangled is used twice in the New Testament, and it means to braid or to interweave. It's, it's the idea of getting tangled up. You get the picture, uh, especially of, of Peter and, and his uh, fisherman kind of background, and it's uh, the fish getting kind of tangled up in the net. It's the, the, the fly that gets caught in the web. But not only are they caught, but they're overcome. And this helps you to understand the, the significance or the seriousness of this entrapment that's happened. They've been mastered. They've been overpowered. They've been dominated. They've been controlled. They're now enslaved to this way of thinking. They've been captured. But add to that, they've been corrupted. We see that the last 
part, the last phrase of verse 20, it says, the last state has become worse for them than the first. There is a corruption that's happened for them that is total. It is permanent. It's complete. The last state is worse than the first. What states are we talking about? What are we comparing? Last state, first state, what are we talking about? Well, the last state is the previous state before they had escaped, before they had knowledge, before they even knew who God was, before they even heard the gospel. Somehow, their current state was worse than that one. And we know how bad that state was. It's a state that leads to condemnation, a a state that not believing in God means that you are going to be judged by God forever. What's going on here? That leads us to our third question. So who is Peter warning? Now this is important, right? Because uh, if, if Peter's talking to me, then I need to, to tune in. I need to listen up. And so we, we began to talk about three possibilities last week. First, are they Christians who have lost their salvation? Are they believers who have lost their salvation? Have they come to Christ, escaped the corruption of the world, enjoyed the power of the Holy Spirit, put on the new nature, embraced the full-bodied gospel, and then apostatized, then turned away, then decided they didn't want anything to do with Christ. They gave it all up. Or are they Christians who have backslidden? That's kind of maybe the more contemporary language. The, the biblical language is to fall away. Are, are, are they those kinds of people who have fallen away? They become complacent in the Christian life. They've Enjoy the benefits of a vibrant relationship with God, but now there's a coldness in their heart. There's an indifference that's settled in. They are now those who show no really visible signs of spiritual life. Maybe the prodigal son would be an example. They've regressed, they've reverted in some way, but eventually the thought is that they'll return. Or third, are they people who have never really been saved? They put on a good show, they went through the motions, they said the prayer, they got baptized, they served in various ministries, they were part of the community, they even rose to positions of authority, maybe they were deacons, maybe they even became pastors in the church, but but it was all just counterfeit, it was all just a show. And maybe, just maybe, they didn't even realize it. They thought they were Christians too. So we need to start to find some answers. How do we begin to find answers to complex questions? Well, there's only one way. The only way to find answers to complex questions is to remember to look to God. You have to find your answers by looking to God, by anchoring your confidence, your hope, your security in the knowledge of who God is. God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God who never changes. The God who is faithful and dependable. The God who is the same. So what do we need to remember about who God is? We need to begin to answer these questions by looking to God. The first thing that we need to keep in mind about the character of God is first that God keeps his own. God keeps his own. Remember, there was a statement that came earlier in this chapter as we were reading through, a statement in chapter two, verse nine. Look at that with me for a moment. 
It says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God keeps his own. And then Peter will give two examples, probably the, the, the most dramatic examples in all of history of how God is able to do exactly what he claims to be able to do in keeping his own, in preserving two families, the, the family of Noah and their family being the only one, the only righteous ones that lived on the entire face of the earth. And God bringing cataclysmic judgment through the flood on the earth was able still to save this family. What would have seemed impossible, God was able to do because of God's power to keep his own. And then the, the story of Lot, who is described as righteous, and yet he's living in a city, Sodom and Gomorrah, this metropolis, this city, who was punctuated by spiritual depravity, by sexual immorality. This entire city is des destroyed by fire, and God demonstrated his ability to save a righteous family out of the midst of an ungodly city. God will keep his kids. Just pause for a moment to, to be encouraged that God is the one who will keep you. Peter emphasized this point in his first letter in chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, who are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Meaning, God will keep you to the finish line. God is able to preserve and protect He's able to put his arms around you and, and he describes, Jesus describes to those who are listening in John chapter 10 that he's got you in his hand. He's hanging on to you when you're not hanging on to him. And his father who is greater than all has his hand around the whole, the whole mess helping to keep it all together. The power of God will keep you to the end. We serve a God who is able to keep us. Next, we begin to move into new territory. We see that God strengthens his own. God strengthens his own. When we talk about backsliders, when we talk about those who have fallen away, I just wanted to, what are some of the, the definitions we can find in the dictionary? Well, Webster's describes it this way. He says, to, um, to lapse morally in the practice of religion to revert to a worse condition. The Cambridge Dictionary says to go back to doing something bad when you've been doing something good. Now, there are two possibilities of falling away that the Bible describes. One that is temporary and one that's permanent. The word that's used in this verse, verse 22, uh, it says, let me just read it for us. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. This is, there are two Greek words that are put together. One that is the word for turn or return, and the second is the word out or away or from. So they're turning away, or they're turning out. They're, they're orienting their heart away from God. Similar word is used in James chapter 5, verse 19, where James says, My brothers, 
If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, that's our word, someone brings him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sin. Even those who wander, even those who stray, there is hope. There is hope because God is able to do a work in their life. He called them to himself. He can restore them to himself when they wander away. Take confidence, take encouragement in a God who's able to turn sinners back to himself. And praise God that we, as those who love God and love the people of God, are often instruments of God to draw those people back to himself. So, so, so don't write them off. Don't let them go. Don't let them wander. Pursue them. Go after them. And pray that God will, uh, will use you to draw them back, to turn their heart back to God. This word for wander in James chapter 5 is the same word that Jesus uses of the sheep that have gone astray in his parable in Matthew chapter 18 verse 12. He says, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, that's the word to wander, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went away? And the answer is, of course he does. And this is the heart of our great shepherd. The heart of our great shepherd is to pursue the sheep. And we don't know who those sheep are. Only God knows hearts, but we will pursue the people who were in fellowship with us and pray to God that he will turn them back, turn their heart back to him, remove the coldness, provide the heat, the intensity of the, of the passion and presence of God in their life. We can pray that God will do that and we can be instruments in that work. But there is another turning, an, another turning that the Bible refers to, and it's not a temporary one, it's a permanent one. In Luke chapter 8, verse 13, the parable of the soils, Jesus describes it this way, the one uh, on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. And their falling away is permanent. Their falling away is secure. There is no coming back. And those in this passage here this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2 would, would be described in that way. Those whose falling away is permanent. Those whose falling away is described by Peter as the last state is worse than the first. It's over for them. Now, we don't know who those people are, but God does. And when they make that change, when they turn their hearts in affection towards those who are leading them astray, when they're entrapped and overcome, it's over. Jesus describes those, however, who endure to the end. Those who endure to the end will be saved. That's the testimony 
of those, the quality of those who are truly believers. They will go the distance. They will make it to the end. And, and Peter describes that in his, in his uh, explanation in chapter 1, verses 5 to 8, where he's describing the, the quality of those who have the, the divine nature in them, one of which is perseverance. Perseverance is a work of the Spirit, the indwelling Spirit in the life that helps keep that person to the end, helps strengthen him to the finish line. They have overcoming power. John describes it this way in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, speaking of false teachers, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world strengthening power of God to keep his own, to carry them through, to help them make it to the finish line. So God keeps his own, God strengthens his own, and God sanctifies his own. He sanctifies his own, which helps us come to terms with the fact that, that whoever Peter is describing here are not believers. They're not believers at all. And verse 22 makes that clear. Verse 22 that says, what is true, what the true proverb says has happened to them, the dog returns to his own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Peter uses this word to show the true nature of those who were playing the part. They were dogs all along. They were pigs all along. They were just playing the part. Their identity now is revealed. The falling away has just revealed their true identity. It's the kind of falling away, again, that John describes in 1 John chapter 2, where he says, Children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be plain that all are not of us. They don't have the enduring quality. They aren't showing the fruit of the Spirit in their life that sanctifies them. The, the fruit of the Spirit, as we looked a couple of years ago in 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 3.18, that, that transforms them from one degree of glory to the other. That's the work of God. That's inevitable. That's what happens when you're a believer. It's irresistible work of the Spirit, the power of God to change you. So we have to ask ourselves the question, so... Peter, why did you use conversion language? Why did you talk about these people in terms as if they were believers? That's so confusing. And I think Peter's answer to us would be, yeah, it is confusing. Because it won't be cut and dry. It won't be obvious. They are among you, and you'll never know until they leave. They will show all of the visible and outward effects of true conversion, but never really believing, and you will know because they'll not stay to the finish line. 
You'll grow up side by side. You'll look identical for a while. Kind of like the parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13 of the wheat and the tares. They looked just alike. They grew up in the same way, in the same field. They enjoyed all the benefits of that fertile soil. They looked the same, but they were not. But God knows that those who belong to him, he's called and they will follow his voice. And they will follow him to the finish line. God sanctifies his own. One of the greatest verses that proves this for us is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Where it says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. When God starts the process, he'll see it through to the end. He will sanctify his own. He'll move them to the finish line. He'll help them to grow in the spiritual life. He gives them the power of the Holy Spirit to transform them from one degree of glory to the other. God will perform for you what you don't have power to do yourself. But as you yield yourself in submission to God in his power, you will begin to see the movement and the work of God in your life to change you. And it might be slow at first, but it will be obvious. Paul tells Timothy, he says, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, and then your progress will be evident to all. People will see it as you continue to, to allow the word of God to be front and center in your life. I wanna close with just one more question. How should I respond to this text? <laughs> what am I supposed to do with this? I mean, come on, this is, this is a hard one. How should I respond to this? And, and there are two ways. First, there's a, warn, a word of warning. And second, there's a word of comfort. I always like finishing with the good news. <laughs> a word of warning. Peter doesn't give us this text so that we can evaluate other people. Peter doesn't give us this text so we can look at somebody who's walked away and write them off. He doesn't give us this text so that we can categorize people and say, ah, it's over for them, sorry. Peter gives us this text so that we can evaluate our own heart. He gives us this text because he knows how prone we are to wander. He knows how fickle our hearts are. He knows how wrapped up and how enticed we are by the things of this world. He knows how attractive this life is and it obscures our vision of glory. It keeps us from seeing the best and the brightest and the most wonderful things because we get our eyes so fixed on the wind and the waves like Peter hopping out of the boat and he's looking at Jesus. He sees how great he is but then he gets distracted by the trials of this life or he gets distracted by the, by the, the good things of this life and it drives his focus away from what really matters. Peter has been seeking in both uh, his first letter and his second to help this church recognize they need to be clear-headed he uses the word sober-minded over and over again. They need to have a perspective of reality that is clear, unfiltered. 
the reason why this church was distracted is because they were being promised the things they really wanted. We see in chapter 2, verse 17, it says, These are waterless springs and mists driven by the storm. They, they had a promise of refreshment. They had a promise of satisfaction. And it began to draw away the hearts of these people to crave the things that they wanted. They were being promised, but there was no substance to those promise, promises because these false teachers had nothing really to give. They, promising freedom, were actually slaves of corruption. And in verse 18, they enticed by sensual passions of the flesh, those who barely escape from those who live in error. It really kind of comes to a head. The, the summary statement of what drives these false teachers is found in verse 10 of chapter 2. It says, especially those, notice, who indulge in the lusts of defiling passions and despise authority. These two features single them out. First, there is a craving for the things of this world. There is an affection for the here and now. There is a stockpiling of interest in the things that make them happy today. The physical things of this life are driving their hearts. Fill in the blank with whatever you want to put there. Sexual passion, craving for money, comfort in building up, stockpiling things to make their life so easy. That's what drove them, and it's captured in the word covetousness. They coveted what they did not have. There was a lack of satisfaction. There was a lack of contentment. That's the first thing. The second thing is there was an unwillingness to submit to authority. They were rebellious in their heart. They wanted to do their own thing. They didn't want anybody to tell them what to do. Peter actually uses a phrase that he draws out of a text from Matthew, Jesus' statement, where he says the last state has been, become worse for them than the first. He, he's drawing from a statement that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 12, 43 to 45, where Jesus is talking about the man who was demon-possessed. The demon is driven out of him. The vacancy is filled with seven others. And Jesus says the last state is worse for him than the first. Peter is making a direct correlation between demon possession and materialism. He's making a direct correlation between demon possession and rebellion in your heart. Well, is that legitimate? I was working through Ephesians chapter 6 several years ago. I asked a friend of mine who was a missionary in Mozambique who was familiar with demon possession and I said, what do you do about the people that you see in your midst who are possessed? How, how, how do you respond? He says, you know, Andrew, if I brought you to Mozambique and you were to see somebody in the church who was rolling on the ground, their eyes rolled back in their heads, speaking in other languages, speaking in a grovelly voice, convulsing, you would say, demon possession. But if I were to bring somebody from Mozambique to, Amer to America, and they saw the consumer, materialistic, 
mindedness of the people in America and they saw their rebel heart towards authority, they would say, demon possession. Is that legitimate? Is that right? Is that fair? Colossians chapter 3 The Apostle Paul gives us a window into the significance or the seriousness of covetousness where he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, demon possession, driven by what controls you. A heart that is bent on wanting more not satisfied in Christ. Christ is not enough. And we can say, okay, you know, covetousness, I'm, I'm not that kind of person, but, but, I, but I think probably the telltale sign of covetousness in our heart is an unwillingness or a, a proclivity towards criticism and complaining. If you do not find yourself consistently thankful, consistently grateful, consistently satisfied with what God has given, you are struggling with covetousness. And then what the Bible says about rebellion is also clear. King Saul lost his throne over rebellion. In 1 Samuel 15, we don't have time to look at the whole story. I just uh, remind you of it. But, 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 but Saul was told to kill and destroy the entire population of, of Amalek, the Amalekites. Every man, woman, child, and every uh, beast that was there, every goat and every sheep and every cow, everything that was walking in the city, he was to kill. Well, he did about 99.9% of what he was supposed to do and thought, ha, I'll do God a favor. I'll save the best of the sheep and I'll kill them later on a sacrifice. And Samuel came to confront Saul and said in 1 Samuel 15, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than all the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. That's serious. God has called us to a heart of gratitude. He's called us to a heart of faith that believes that God is ultimately in control. I love how Paul puts this. We're wrapping up, so bear with me. Almost there. Will you do me a favor and and look at Philippians chapter 4? Philippians chapter 4. I put the wrong passage on the slide, so you're going to have to look there with me. Philippians chapter 4. Notice the significance of contentment, okay? Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, I think. I can't see the numbers. Bear with me. I think it's 11. It says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Is that verse 11? 10, verse 10, thank you. People with better eyes. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though surely you did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. 
I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The strengthening power of God will help you be content. Otherwise, covetousness will settle into your heart and possibly capture you away. So let's end with a word of hope, okay? Just a word of comfort. First, I want you to be encouraged when you see faith in your life, okay? Peter begins this whole letter by talking about the significance of faith. He says, like precious faith, we we share this this, uh, faith that is common to both of us. And, And as we see the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his ability to forgive our sin and to, um, and to call us into relationship with him. And as we see the faith that is active, not just static, not dormant, but the faith that is moving us to believe in God more today than we did yesterday, we can say, you know what? I'm not where I want to be. But by God's grace, he's giving me faith to grow. And you can be encouraged. Second, when you see the power of God, to help you overcome the sins that, that, that once captured you, those things that, that, that caught you away, those things you didn't seem to have any control of before, when, when you see the Holy Spirit building fruit in your life, you see more of his love and more of his patience and kindness, more self-control in your life, you can say, you know what? I'm not where I want to be. But by God's grace, I see the evidence of indwelling power in me and you can rejoice. When God brings conviction to your life, when the Holy Spirit who has been put into the world to draw the world to conviction of sin, when you feel conviction over your sin, you can be encouraged that God cares about your life and he wants to restore you back to relationship with him. And when you decide that you're gonna continue to go your own way, when you say, you know what? I kind of like my sin, <laughs> but God says, uh, I'm glad you like it, but let me tell you, I'm gonna stand in your way. I'm gonna discipline you over this. When you experience the discipline of God, God only disciplines the kids he loves, those who are part of his family. And when you're disciplined for sin, you can say, you know what? I belong to God, because God only disciplines those he loves. He only disciplines his kids. And finally, when you experience the forgiveness of sin, when you come to a place of recognizing you're a sinner and you ask for forgiveness and you remember 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, then we can say, you know what? I'm not where I want to be, but by God's grace, I belong to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the easy texts and thank you for the hard ones. Thank you for the warning that is so necessary. Help us not to be so consumed with this life. Help us to be focused on the next. May we have as a priority the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you.